Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. I asked Professor Douglas Brooks if he was interested in recording a few episodes for the Glow Podcast where I suggest a word to him and then he takes that word and runs with it. I've often benefited from hearing him speak on various topics privately, and I wanted to see if we could offer you, our audience, a somewhat similar experience through this format. The first word I gave him was anxiety. So this first episode is about anxiety. Douglas draws upon his deep scholarly knowledge of yoga and the sutras of Patanjali to help reframe anxiety so that we might understand it better and perhaps reduce its negative effects on our well-being. As Douglas explains, anxiety is often seen as a problem to be solved or a feature of ourselves that is contrary to who we are or as the enemy in the problem. But Douglas reframes this to suggest that the whirlwind of life and the anxiety it brings is an invitation, when possible, to create a relationship with ourselves in which we aren't victims, nor are we helpless. I hope you enjoy this episode from Professor Douglas Brooks. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, Patanjali tells us in Sanskrit. That is that yoga is the quelling, the cessation, the nirodha, the occlusion, the process by which we bring to a halt the whirlwind of the psychophysical consciousness. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. So in that encompassing understanding, Patanjali is going to include, I think, rather naturally, the symptoms and experiences that we would necessarily identify as anxiety. And I use Patanjali as our starting point because he represents, in a certain way, a strategy that we find across the traditions of yoga that particularly emphasize the, our capacity and ability to address the entirety of our human experience. When he says, chitta vritti, the turnings, the vritti, the whirlwind of chitta, that word chitta, usually translated consciousness, really means the entirety of our psychophysical being. It means our body, our minds, our hearts. It means the, the, the experience of being a living, mortal, temporal human. And his prescription begins in his definition. That is his strategy to address this experience of embodiment and what we might call its whirlwind and is deliberately directed towards practices of meditative absorption and which he's going to associate with traditions that are called samadhi, taking consciousness into equanimity and consciousness into what's called smarana or mindfulness. So equanimity and awareness are going to be critical features that are both strategies to be employed, like things we can do, the practices, and mindfulness 
and awareness and equanimity are all practices that, in fact, address the issue of anxiety, of our encompassing psychophysical whirlwind in such a way that he, he suggests to us that we can not only manage that and attenuate those feelings, try to control them and reshape them, but that he deliberately suggests nirodaha. We can bring them to a halt. We, they can arrive at a certain kind of clarification that bring that, that, that means to cease. And I think that is a fascinating and remarkable, audacious kind of claim that, that we see not only here in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, but elsewhere in the tradition where the notion of how we are um, subjected to the problematics of anxiety and the mental whirlwinds tumult, the turmoil we feel in our body and our hearts, the, the worry, the fear, the stress, even the exhaustion and enervation that I think come with the experience of how the world and how our own machinations, how our own lives create these feelings inside ourselves. In the case of Patanjali and in, in an interesting feature of the yoga traditions at large is the notion that we can, uh, we can arrive at a solution that brings these experiences, troublesome as they are, to a halt. We can bring them to a conclusive and resolved experience in which, in which we have a kind of immunity and inoculation from, as it were, the worst of what they do, and so bring consciousness to this equanimitous place, to this poised experience of receptivity and, and sensitivity in which the problematics of the whirlwind, anxiety, stress, fear, are, have been managed to a place where, where they are no longer particularly a feature of our experience. I'm not trying to overstate the case here because a careful reading of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and specifically his definition of how we bring cessation, nirodha, to the problematic of the, of the mental whirlwind is plain for us to see. And it's, it's a radical, audacious um, kind of solution and because it, it really does claim that what we are capable of doing as human, uh, as human beings is bringing about a relationship to our bodies, our minds, our thoughts and feelings in which that anxiety is no longer present, not simply attenuated or managed, not simply cooled and, and, and quelled 
in a kind of possibility of 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 working with the anxiety but rather extinguishing it and that's unambiguously the language that patanjali favors in his opening definition of yoga now i'm not going to debate patanjali but what i do want to make clear is that this sensibility in the yoga traditions that equanimity, mindfulness, meditation, and other practices, including active practices, such as asana, will bring the mental whirlwind to a place where we as human beings are now, as it were, immune to its deleterious effect and to its debilitations. That as a audacious and, and one might say, extravagant kind of claim um, is not only present in Patanjali's yoga. There's plenty of other traditions where what we see is, the, is, is, is how the practices of yoga, deep engagement, meditation, awareness, bringing the mind and body to equanimity, to a kind of tranquility. The word in Sanskrit is often prasanna, which means tranquil or equanimitous. And that that confers on us an immunity, almost, in fact, it's not overstated to say an invulnerability. And early Buddhism, too, is going to give us a language not unlike that, when the achievement of awakening to be a Buddha, to be fully awakened, is assigned the language of nirvana. And nirvana means the wind has blown out. It means to extinguish. It means to bring to finality and to an end that which is problematic and so-called by the tradition samsara and everything that is not nirvana is samsara and while that is a less nuanced understanding of of the intricacies of of the teachings offered here it doesn't overstate the sensibility that a significant portion of the yoga tradition is teaching more than management, more than a sense of how do we address our physical, emotional nature, but that we can take these features of ourselves and create a finality, a kind of commanding discernment and a state of our own experience in which we are no longer subjected, much less subjugated by them. So just to make this clear and bring it to some kind of conclusion so we can move our conversation forward about anxiety, there are elements in the yoga tradition, important and influential voices and sensibilities that carry through 
and across traditions of spirituality that suggests that in some sense our truest nature, even if that understanding is there is no singular or permanent or intrinsic nature, but our deepest possibility in human embodiment brings us to an awareness in which, and, and an experience in which anxiety as a feature of the mental, physical whirlwind is extinguished and we arrive at a place of nirvana or a place where samadhi, equanimity consciousness, not only relieves us of these burdens and problematics, but extinguishes them in, in, a, in, a, in a more spiritually exalted or complete state of fulfillment and potential. The Buddhists will call that buddhas, the, and by other terms, of course, and, and in other traditions, we'll, we'll find the yogi, the siddha, the perfected being. But all of that language of finality and completion suggests that anxiety is in some sense like our material, temporal, like in our in time, our physical, mortal, and conditional nature as human beings, that these are features of that ephemera, that anxiety belongs to changeability, and that there is in some way possible that we can arrive through practices of yoga, meditation, mindfulness, engaging embodiment in such a way and so deeply that these features of experience are adventitious. That's a fancy word that means not really a part of our truest self that, or not really a part of our nature. Adventitious like dust is to a mirror. And that if we were capable of removing the dust, the problematic, in this case, the problematic that we are collectivizing in, by the, using the word anxiety, that we, if we could remove the anxiety dust, then consciousness or human experience would be freed from this deeply problematic feature of human experience that isn't really part of the mirror. It's just dust on the mirror. And we could remove that dust in such a way that by continued practice, and this becomes an interesting sort of philosophical question for Buddhists and Hindus and others deeply engaged in yoga practices, whether that continuous practice sort of allows us to sort of keep the, the mirror of consciousness, the mirror of, of clarity and peacefulness and equanimity, to keep that mirror clean, as it were, or purified. And there's very much a language of purification associated with these traditions of finality and of, of invulnerability that suggests to us that if we could just figure out how to get the dust off the mirror, and if we could 
create a practice that that continues to address the the problematic at least in a chronic way that we just keep polishing the mirror that in some sense we would be relieved of this situation of anxiety precisely because it is adventitious it doesn't really belong to us it is in some sense an extrinsic factor it's a it's a bug it's not a feature of what we really are now that's an interesting kind of claim but i think it's not it's not a um it's not an unfair reading of at least a significant portion of the yoga tradition that vests itself in practices that mean to not only relieve and manage, but bring us to conclusive results and then tell us that we arrive at a finality of human potential that no longer entails these experiences because they are not in fact who and what we really are. And that becomes an important distinction. And I think it becomes a worthy issue of our, of our study as yogis to ask ourselves, hmm, if this is what they're saying, then is, is, what does that mean for us? And we'll take that a bit further here, but I'm also going to suggest that, as we said at the outset, not all yoga traditions are univocal. They're not all approaching the problematics or the issues of being human in the same way. They're not offering the same ideas about who we are and what we are as, as embodied, living, mortal, conditions, human beings. And they're not in agreement necessarily about even the strategies and the practices that we might use uh, or, and cultivate to address our human conditions. So let me summarize by saying, is the, since yoga traditions have lots of different points of view about the human condition and what it means to be an experiencing a body, a mind, um, an emotional state of conditions that include stress and worry, anxiety, enervation, the experience we have of, of being in the whirlwind, that they come up with radically different assessments of who and what we are and how we might address this situation that we find ourselves in, in an ordinary way. That is, this is how we, this is how we ordinarily experience ourselves. Because like I said, I, it's, hard, it's hard to begin a conversation about anxiety um, without noticing that it seems to be a quality or a feature that we all have. No amount of experience or expertise, you know, no script or teleprompter kind of um, help is going to allow us to, to be exempt and, and in, or, or deny the way in which we feel anxiety. It's just, it seems to be a part of our ordinary mortal condition.
The question before us is, how does yoga help us address that situation? And the first kind of feature of the tradition is to suggest that those experiences aren't, to use, a, to use a, an overstated way of putting it, but to say those experiences of anxiety aren't our true nature, that what's really possible for us are not only practices that, that mitigate and address anxiety, but that cure it or solve it. And that's only possible if what you're really saying is that this experience of anxiety is like dust to a mirror. It's, it's not what we really are. And that what we really are is possible to be learned and practiced. And that this is a, a state of affairs that we can arrive at a samadhi, an equanimity consciousness, or a prasanna, a tranquility, or a smirti, a mindfulness that in every way um, tells us that now I know or now I'm experiencing my truest nature, my real self, or I'm freed from the burdens of that self that associates and identifies with these experiences of anxiety, and that there is a solution. What everyone seems to be suggesting who's in that one might call the ethos of solution, like anxiety is the problem, here are the practices, this is how you create and sustain a yoga, a deep engagement, a practice, physical, mental, emotional, that solves the problem. And whether or not one arrives at the ultimate solution, enlightenment, becoming the Buddha, the perfected being, the, the yogi of, of impervious samadhi to the problem, everyone in that sensibility, everyone on that, on those, in those strategies and, and features of the yoga tradition who, who are part of that sensibility, that, that ethos of claim, what they're going to tell us is that anxiety is not intrinsic. It's not built into us. It is a feature of how we've come into this world in the mortal and conditioned flow, how we've been created by the circumstances of embodiment in the natural world. They're going to call all of that samsara and tell us that that samsaric condition, our being human in the problematic ways in which we're subject to time and environment and our upbringing and our deep connectivity to family and society, culture, all the things that cause us to experience anxiety, that all of that in a certain way is part of our human condition, but it is not our human nature. It's not the deepest feature of ourselves. And so what about us is intrinsic. And I think what we can say is that in response to these traditions, is that whether or not certain features of the yoga tradition treat anxiety 
or the problematic of human existence as built in, as intrinsic. They all, these folks seem to agree that what we can do is, is solve the problematic. And that itself, I think, is, a, is, a, is something we should, we should consider seriously. There's another feature of the yoga traditions that I think that, that offer a kind of counterpoint to the strategies of anxiety. So we can leave aside for the moment whether anxiety is our truest nature, whether it's intrinsic to us. We can simply say, look, we're all human and anxiety seems to be a feature of all of us, how and in how do we address that in what practices and, and what's the outcome of that? Like, how do we confront our experience of the mental whirlwind? How do we, how do we decide to shape it and reclaim a sense of empowerment and a sense of, of identification with a deeper sense of ourselves? How do we arrive at an equanimity and a mindfulness and awareness that lets us address the anxious life. Now, I'm going to start with a bit of contention with that yoga tradition and suggest that, that anxiety seems quite a feature of our intrinsic human nature. If you're living in a human body, anxiety is a way in which feelings of stress and worry, sometimes fear, are a normal feature of our lives. And we, in almost every moment, I think it's fair to say that we are addressing those experiences of anxiety because we cope, we adjust, we adapt we align in every breath to the fact that the human condition has these volatilities, that, that we, we have these changes, and that the input into the body, what we eat, how we sleep, how we live in our physical selves, our lives as social and cultural beings in a world that has exacerbated and every day seems to bring yet another good reason to feel anxious about living in this world. Think of these last five, ten years of the escalating situation as we become more globally connected beings, as we become more attuned to the human situation all over the world, socially, culturally, politically, in every way, we have good reason to, to wake up in the morning and with the slightest kind of consideration of the news, feel worried, feel anxious. We, we might have some, some fear, even terror or stress. We can't seem to avoid that. And, of course, the news, as we understand what the news does to us and what it seems to be telling us, only exacerbates that problem 
because the plane landed safely is rarely in the news. So I mean to say that given our, our physical and natural condition, our social cultural selves, and then the very distinctive ways in which we as individuals and as humans of our own creativity and making, beings of individuated consciousness, that we have our own relationship with body, mind, heart, our own relationship with anxiety. And I think the distinction that I'm beginning, that we're beginning with here, are those who, who are proposing that we want to create a connection and an association with practices that quell and calm, manage, even extinguish anxiety, that the relationship we're creating with the feelings of anxiety are, are meant to treat anxiety as, as, as something that, that isn't who we really are or is something that we can manage and address because not only do we have the tools and the methods in yoga to help us do that, but because the relationship we're creating with anxiety is one that treats it as a problem to be solved or a situation to be managed or a feature of ourselves that is fundamentally mm, antithetical or contrary to who we are and what we can be. And so don't want to overstate this either, but in some ways, anxiety is then treated as a kind of adversary. It's sort of the enemy in the problem. Like, oh, we feel anxiety and I've got, and, and it's overwhelming me or overtaking me. It, it almost creates its own identity. And we think, well, that's not who I really am. That's not who I want to be. And I can address that. But part of the strategy we see before us is, is that these experiences being so unhelpful and, and so problematic, and they arise to levels, they're not only, they, they're questioning whether anxiety is a quality of being human, but really, since we can, we can agree, I think, that the anxiety we ordinarily feel, the anxiety we, all, we, we subject ourselves to just by being alive, by taking the next breath, by waking up in a global world where we still care about the world and ourselves, where we're, we're concerned for the welfare of the planet, of each other, of society and culture, of our values, where we're, we're concerned about our own well-being and our own mental health and our own relationship to, to living in this complexity of situations, that what we're, what we're facing when we face anxiety is not only the question of, is it a quality we all, in some sense, a feature, a, a part of us, but how as a quantity, like how much anxiety do we feel? And when the anxiety levels ramp up and become really problematic when they become disruptive and, and nurture 
create in us a kind of unhappy, you know, an unhappiness, a, a way of a real stress with just getting along in life. That that's a, a quantitative problem. That's a, like how much anxiety am I feeling? And when is that a mat? When is that something I must address? I think that one of the first things all of the yoga traditions agree to, even those who want to say, look, those experiences aren't who you really are. There's a potential to manage them and address them to bring them to a finality or an extinction. Even those folks on sort of that side of the anxiety relationship are going to tell us that, that we do have strategies. We're not, and we do have practices. We're not helpless and we're not victims. And yoga is always an invitation to creativity and betterment to the, the aspirational possibilities of, of, a, of a human life in which we have a real relationship to our empowerment, to our ability to address ourselves, to create a relationship with ourselves. And in that relationship with ourselves, we aren't victims. We aren't helpless. We can learn and develop both for ourselves as individuals and in community and in shared relationships, ways in which the problematics of our experience are manageable and are made a, a part of our lives, even if we never arrive at, as it were, the ultimate solutions all of the yoga traditions are going to agree that, that we are not helpless in this process because we can engage in a relationship with ourselves, with our feelings, our thoughts, with our bodies, with our minds and hearts committed. And that would be kind of another definition of yoga, engagement, commitment, that way in which we yoke ourselves to the matter at hand. And here it is, how do we address anxiety? And again, that relationship with anxiety is, I think, the next feature of our conversation. In many of the stories of yoga, the mythologies and the storytelling traditions that help us understand the deeper connection that we make those stories giving us insight and understandings, symbols, ways of, of creating a deeper relationship to the conversation of, we have with ourselves, to yoga. In the yoga stories, it's not uncommon for the problematics of our human experience, our anxieties, to be portrayed as the tempter or as the demon or as the negativity in the in the famous story of retold in the buddhist canon of the buddha's own process of enlightenment he encounters death mara as a tempter and as an anxiety provocateur and as one who promises him all the benefits of the world and none of its problematics and of course we don't need to retell how that story comes forward except to, to take note that, that 
the experience, the experiences we we would call problematic are given this persona. They're given this this identification with something that is alien to us, that something that is invading us, or at least is our own. If if the demons aren't other, they're our own demons, and that we should uh, we should create a strategy of of keeping them at bay and and holding them apart and addressing them for what they are. That is, that is the source of our problematic. And in a certain way, that strategy is is not uncommon in the yoga tradition. And I think we see it we see it everywhere uh, in in the images in which the yogi is portrayed as being under, in some sense, under some kind of assault, un- under some duress, under stress, that is being subjected to an anxious set of circumstances, an anxious world, and anxiety-provoking circumstances, and the adversary is attempting to, you know, in this case, Mara, death, or whoever the demon is in the story, is is trying to exacerbate that, trying to make it worse, and that, and that what the the yogi can do is create a physical and mental response and a state in the body and the mind that simply no longer permits that adversarial and and exacerbating set of circumstances that voice and that that assault to happen we learn to focus our minds claim the power of the body particularly in the breath in pausing in reflection in creating space between ourselves and this provocation or this arising feeling or this assault on us that we that causes or furthers anxiety and so and these practices and strategies well outlined and and now taught i think rather brilliantly uh, in many places not not specifically calling themselves yoga anymore think of how modern mindfulness traditions or modern mindfulness practices are are deliberately um kind of pushing back against the language and the history of meditation in the yoga traditions to say look these are efficacious and important things we can do that we can learn we can learn in meditation a deeper relationship with the body through the breath, through the process of calming certain thoughts and, and addressing and creating a relationship to the body and to the whirlwind of the mind that, that does more than simply soothe or, or wash over us, but creates a a process of real transformation and effective methodology, effective outcomes that are durable and lasting 
and can genuinely reshape and alter our relationship with anxiety. And and just to stay on the theme here of the strategy and keep it at bay or manage or hold it in a kind of abeyance with respect to the relationship we want. What kind of relationship do we want to have with anxiety? And the efficacy, you know, the ability to like really produce demonstrable result and you, and allowing our natural selves in breath, in sound, using a, a complexity of synesthesias, different, allowing all the senses to converge upon a project that is directed towards an equanimity consciousness in the breath, in the mind, perhaps saying a simple mantra or using sound or music or some other process or in an activity like a great yoga posture class, an asana class, and, and giving us a sense of boundary and relationship with anxiety that, that allows us to, to not only address it and in some sense sequester it or hold it in abeyance, but allows us to take that experience and, and create a relationship where we are no longer feeling it's so subjugated, like so owned and, and oppressed. And that the practices that we can learn in meditation, in breathing, in a more advanced pranayama, or in as we take the practices further, we gain a greater sense of empowerment and and certainly less less helplessness, less victimization, less a sense of there's nothing I can do about this. When in fact, yoga tells us, and everyone agrees, I think across the traditions, oh, there's very much we can do about this and we can help you, we can teach you, we can show you how you can do this and in effect, how anyone can do this, how everyone who has just, just enough opportunity and just enough time and privilege and that itself is very problematic in our world. Not everyone has that chance, but if you have the chance to address anxiety that we can create a relationship in which in which though in which there are positive and empowering features of practice that take us through the body and into connection with feeling and the sensual embodied experience and into the mental whirlwind and the thought process and into a sense of how we live with ourselves and cope, adjust, adapt. And we can keep that, those quantities of anxiety in, um, in a relationship that's manageable and, 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 and in fact, improving and durably resilient to their, to, to it getting to, to it kind of reverting or getting worse or exacerbating. And we can actually deal with this now. I think that strategy is 
much of what we've heard of so far in the in the conversations that, as I said at the very outset, some ten minutes ago or so, that about this article I just saw once again in this morning's New York Times, that I think one of the underlying features of it is to create a relationship in which anxiety does not is is kept as it were um as as a relationship of of we can do better than that we're not that it's that's an assault on us that's it's almost an adversarial relationship because we just have to address it like it's so it's it's so problematic and honestly debilitating and those feelings are are natural, but we're not helpless because we can use our bodies, our minds. We can create relationships with anxiety that then translate into the everyday, into how we how we create a conversation with ourselves, with those who are near to us in a workplace, in a social conversation. We can actually open the newspaper and not be you know, gobsmacked with anxiety because the terrors and horrors and cruelties of the world that would naturally cause any of us to feel some kind of fear and worry and, and raise our stress levels, you know, how much of that world do we take in? And that's part of what we're talking about here in this initial set of practices and strategies that, that in some sense, these are the traditions suggesting that we limit our consumption <laughs> of anxiety or anxiety producing situations or that we take time out from those provocateurs, from those situations, from those narratives and stories. We, we create a separation from the input and allow, as it were, a more natural and cultivated state of our, of ourselves to address this stress so that when, once again, we step out of meditation or we leave the mat or when we finally get home from yoga class, we are carrying with us a certain kind of boundary-created state in which we've placed those provocative and problematic features of, the, of ourselves in the world. We've held them in, in a certain in a certain safer place because we've learned how to manage their input, their effect, their, our relationship with them is one of, of managing degrees and forms of anxiety producing situations or worlds. Now we all know that, that if we go back, to meditation, we, we are become regulars. If we create a practice that has a durable and sustainable role in our lives, and that if we schedule it and make time for ourselves and make time, make time for the yoga, make time for the meditation that we need to take care of ourselves, that we do create a kind of of possibility of management where, where we're, we're at least better insulated and better, better capable, more adroit and, and more assiduous, more attentive 
to how those problematics um, become part of our lives. Like, do we let them in? I have a very good friend who finds our global situation politically, economically, global, global warming, and the problematics of climate change, and simply like the situation of our world so deeply anxiety producing that he has deliberately restricted and attenuated that narrative in his life. He, he, to be really honest, he ignores a lot of the news and that may be something we all need to do in some degree, but just how we can situate ourselves or isolate ourselves from anxiety creating formats or situations or, or how much we can kind of keep it at, at bay because we're going to stay in our state and, and we're not going to allow that to, to debilitate us or to change us. That's a very interesting and kind of problematic issue because we are, we are beings of the world. We're global citizens. We, ha we, we engage our families and our families cause us stress. They cause us anxiety. We're, we, we live in our bodies and they're changing. We're growing older. We're attending to our health. All of these situations, however adept we become in managing them, um, will not ultimately allow us to exclude these feelings. Now, I think my pal here has a good point. You know, garbage in, garbage out. If we are attentive and aware of those situations that create for us anxiety, we can keep some of that at bay. We don't have to, we don't have to indulge it. We can step out of routines and compulsions and even perceived obligations and responsibilities that may not be those things and instead um, refocus and reclaim the, the value of practices like meditation and attention to breath, pause, yoga, asana, whatever it is that gives you that space, that room, not so much to retreat from the world, but to manage its boundaries and the circumstances of input, that strikes me as, as something that is proven to be effective and does us a good bit of good. And so we, and we are responsible as creative individuals if we, again, if we have the opportunity and the chance in our lives to, to try to make better choices about what we let in and how we respond and how we react and, and assimilate and assume, adapt and align ourselves to a world that is never less stressful and never less problematic. And if we accept the fact that, that this situation that creates anxiety is itself 
manageable in degrees to which we react and respond, that we have creative and empowering methods of taking ourselves to, play, to, to mental and physical, emotional states and conditions that, are, that, that leave us, as it were, less anxious because we have responsibly and creatively, mindfully, and with hope and aspiration, created a more durable relationship with a never less anxious life. That that, that that is a viable and important strategy. And I think that's largely what we have witnessed so far in our understandings of the practices of meditation and mindfulness, the practices that we've been taught on the mat and elsewhere as being as being reprieve, places of pause and retreat, places to regather, reclaim, soothe, address the, the anxiety we feel, and then learn how to create better boundaries and more clearly defined relationships with the things of life that create or instigate, exacerbate more anxiety. But I think that here we can come to a pretty interesting and dramatic turning point in the conversation. Because elsewhere in the yoga traditions, there's a dramatically different relationship with anxiety being suggested in practices and in storytelling traditions and in the images and symbologies of yoga that allow us to create a different relationship with anxiety than, than, than the language of, of serenity, insight, and restraint, which is what I would suggest are the principal features common to yoga traditions, but strategized, strategized particularly in early traditions by suggesting that, that those terms of, of serenity and insight, samatha vipassana in the Buddhist tradition, those traditions of, of management and, and, and exemption that allow us to, to have insight into the provocations of stress and anxiety and into the sources of our own, of our own feelings, that when we address those experiences, we can create a relationship of boundary. I think that the radical, the radical alternative begins to be suggested even before the traditions called Tantra begin to crystallize historically. I'm going to pause there and give you a lecture about the history of the development of these of these traditions, except to say that I think that one of the most important features that tantric traditions of yoga create is, is a new relationship with the problematic of anxiety. That instead of creating a relationship of adversary 
or problem, a situation to be attenuated and solved, that what we also find in yoga traditions is an invitation to a deeper relationship with anxiety, where anxiety becomes something that protects us and empowers us and becomes a symbol of our creativity, a certain recognition that the discomforts and problematics and really stressful, difficult results of anxiety can themselves be in some measure harnessed and brought into a relationship in which those discomforting, problematic realities are focal points and, and opportunities to create empowerment that we, that, that we're, we're not going to be in some sense less endangered or imperiled by the problematics of anxiety, but we can create a dramatically different relationship, one in which the boundary is not keeping at bay or holding in restraint the, the, the provocateurs, the stressful situations, but a more integrated and more inviting relationship with anxiety. Now, um, that is particularly, as I, as I just said a moment ago, that's particularly noteworthy in what come to be called the tantric traditions. But that, that need not belay our, our, our study here or our conversation about this because that becomes the strategic alternative. How can we create a more empowering, protective, inviting relationship with features of anxiety that will otherwise debilitate us or, or, or make life harder and more problematic, how do we take in or relate to those discomforts, those facts of life that are stressful, that surround us and not allow them to overwhelm us, but to create, in fact, a deeper connection with them. So instead of keeping anxiety out or in some sense, letting it come in and overwhelm us or take over us, how do we create a more intimate, a more successfully engaged conversation with anxiety? And do we have the tools and symbols and strategies to do that? Now, yoga traditions have, at least I think, as we've learned them recently in the last hundred years in the West, have particularly given us the strategies of mindfulness, serenity, awareness that allow us to create boundary and balance to keep out the quantities and debilitating features of anxiety. But there's less studied is in fact letting in these symbols, telling us ourselves using the stories and telling ourselves the story that anxiety is not necessarily adversarial, but it can also be an ally. It can be, uh, it can be represented and part of 
a story that that gives us uh, a deeper relationship, a conversation, since we're not going to be able to, as it were, get rid of it, that being disputable, depending upon who we ask, but since we're not going to be able to extinguish the anxiety, we need good fences and we need to make good neighbors, but we also need to create a deeper connection. We need to have a good conversation with anxiety. And for that, the yoga traditions have given us really interesting, compelling symbols and words and ideas and practices that I think we can bring up, we can talk about now that are, that, that have a radical, uh, offer a radical alternative and, and affirmation of a new relationship with anxiety. So at the heart of this new relationship, this radical relationship with anxiety is an important and interesting word in the Sanskrit language. And it's part of a whole realm of symbology that I'm sure most of you have at least seen or exposed yourself to. The word is ahi. And we would spell that in English, A-H-I, ahi. And it's historically related linguistically to the word anxiety, directly related to the word anxiety in English. And of course, to the German word angst. And, and so ahi, angst, anxiety, these are all what we call cognates, that is linguistically they all refer back to the same root, to the same source, to the same origin of the word. And I think that itself is rather telling once we understand that the word ahi in Sanskrit not only means anxiety or angst, that is, that disarming and rather stressful experience that includes worry and fear and in a sense of the world being often unpredictable and sometimes adversarial and problematic because the word ahi is one of the important words in Sanskrit for snake. Yeah, so you might know the word naga. That's the word in Sanskrit that is ordinarily snake and it's related to the word snake. You might know the word sarpa, that too being the Sanskrit word, that's related to the English word serpent. But you probably didn't know that the word ahi, the word anxiety in Sanskrit, is also commonly used for the word snake. And that snakes are not only possess ahi, they are representations. They are a symbolic archetype of ahi. And there we have it. Uh, because right before our eyes in symbol and image, because we're going to find again and again across the yoga traditions that, that the snakes, particularly cobras or the forms of the serpent, the, the, the ahi is not an ad, necessarily an adversary, but an important ally, a source of rest and, and relaxation 
the the great Hindu god Vishnu um, has as his own personal sleep comfort bed the the great serpent Shesha, whose name is Shesha, and Shesha is an Ahi. He is a serpent, and while Vishnu sleeps and dreams the world into being, he uh, he holds and embraces the sublime consciousness and casts uh, his hood of five-faced cobras over the sleeping Vishnu as a protector and as a source not of, of terror, but of embracing comfort. And there we have it. The snake itself, the ahi, is understood to be a creature deeply connected to its own nature. That, that when the serpent employs constriction or venom, it does so to protect itself. It does so to, to, um, to eat and to digest. It's one of the features of, of the cobras that we know now is that, is that their venom is part and parcel of the digestion of their food. And so in what way is our venomous and constricting self a part of what holds us together and what nurtures us and what protects us and what allows us to carry on in, in being who we really are. One of the things we can say when we examine these images and stories that in the mythologies and symbols, we are looking, we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at a mirror of ourselves. We're looking prismatically through the powers of consciousness to imagine ourselves, the world, everything around us. As my teacher in India used to say, in the signs and symbols, in these images and stories, we find ourselves in, in the triadic relationship that what they represent is not me, that that's the world or someone else. What they represent is something like me because they have the thoughts and feelings and experiences that resemble my own. But also what we see when we see the other or when we see these symbols what, and images and stories, we, in every character in the story, we see nothing but ourselves. So they're not me. They're like me. They're really nothing but me. They're me. And we get to understand ourselves through that process in which we can examine and, and test ourselves to see how are we relating to the world, where are our resemblances, and how are we really just every character in the story. And here, that restful, holy, mindful, dreaming Lord Vishnu is asleep on this remnant of himself. Shesha means the extra piece. And there Shesha comforts him and supports him and provides for him protection because while he's sleeping, he's vulnerable, or so it would seem. Maybe because he's Vishnu, he's a god and not quite so vulnerable. But let's take this as ourselves. And 
it's the power of the breath, the power of the movement of consciousness, the power of anxiety in the form of Vishnu's serpent that keeps him protected and gives him an opportunity to restore and dream and imagine the world and create its measures, its maya, and then allows him to rest peacefully because anxiety is doing its job. That's a pretty radical understanding because who breathes us, who holds us, who embraces us in this world when we need to be restored, when we need to sleep and rest, when we need to dream our own worlds. Well, anxiety becomes not here the adversary, but it becomes a symbol of how this strange feature that may be an, may be an extra asset, it may be an important part of what protects us and what serves us and what empowers us to, to do those meditations that, that restore and reclaim and allow us to dream and act. You know, sometimes um, when I, I go into my work, I know that my beloved or my family are like Vishnu's Shesha. They're dealing with the anxieties of the world and giving me the opportunity to do my thing or to find my space or to complete my job. And so they're addressing the stress so that I can be less stressed. That's a form of ahi. That's a form of anxiety because that world isn't going to go away. And and when those who care about us ask us about our health, or in the case of, say, my beloved asks me, did you drink water today? Did you take time out to ride the bike or to meditate? That might cause me anxiety, or it might cause me to say, well, you know. But what it does is by provoking or poking, using the, 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 the serpentine power to get inside me that it makes me mindful. It makes me, it instigates my care and concern. It reminds me anxiety in this case, in the form of, of a sweethearted query, you know, a question uh, about my health or about taking care or what I need, what I need to do from my beloved. It's, it's just another instance in which we're using anxiety or at least provoking that that possibility that that these questions which might cause us to be a little stressed or or um or take us to some kind of discomfort oh, i didn't do that or i should do that or i kind of need to do that those all being kind of features and symptoms of anxiety and stress that that can get to us there that's actually an invitation. That's actually um, a loving act in which, in which 
in which the bite, <laughs> the uh, the is not venom, but rather comfort and care to to alert us to how dangerous and how imperiled we can we can make ourselves should we not address those issues if if that if that discomfort or that forgetfulness or that neglect i might bring to myself isn't addressed well what's going to happen it's going to get worse right it's going to be more problematic so what we need to do certainly is we need to we 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 often have ahi that is that anxiety giver, whether it's society or our beloved or the world, tell us, you know, anxiety protects you because it alerts you to what you need to do and how you can address it effectively. And that it comes from a voice, not necessarily of provocation, but even though it might alert you to discomfort, it comes from a voice of care and concern and protection and alertness, all of which are typically symbolized in the serpent, and in this case, in Vishnu's serpent, Shesha. Um, there are other great stories involving Shesha where Shesha questions Vishnu and asks him all kinds of interesting matters of the world in which Shesha, the serpent, is saying, how do I empower myself? How do I learn that? How do I, how do I go find Shiva, the dancer, and experience the ecstasy of artistry? And Vishnu's going to tell him, it's a long journey. It's a perilous journey. You're going to have to change yourself along the way. And Ahi, the serpent, the snake says, I'm willing to do that because I know that when I give you comfort, I'm protecting you, but that the world is a dangerous place and it's never going to be less dangerous. And so I'm going to have to address that stress in a way in which I create meaningful boundaries and a relationship in which I know that that anxiety isn't necessarily my adversary. It's in a, it's me, Vishnu's, Vishnu's serpent says. It's it's who I am, and that's because I know. Because I try to connect to who I am, Shesha says that I can change. I can address myself, and anxiety isn't my adversary. It is in fact. It is in fact the most important feature of this story because Shesha says, because that's who I am. I'm the Ahi. I'm, I'm anxiety itself. And I'm not your enemy. I'm not your adversary. I'm, I can be brought into a relationship of creativity, of imagination, of deep connection. And, you know, I've always, when I've heard this story, my teacher told it this way, I thought, wow, I because honestly, I am pretty scared of snakes. I mean, some people have snakes, some people some people have spiders. Everybody's got their something, but I don't know. Like it doesn't seem to me an accident that the Indian tradition uses the word ahi, the word anxiety, 
and says that word means 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 a snake because snakes are pretty anxiety provoking in so many of us and we can go deep down that symbolic path but one of the things we find in india uh in the yoga traditions is that the ahi is certainly not the serpentine beelzebub like he, it's it's not the snake in the garden that's going to get us it's not it isn't the embodiment of of the tempter of evil or or of or of misdirection or or of of adversary but rather almost entirely as we as we sort of begin to examine the the serpents in india they're they are they are strategies and voices images of of the sublime that 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 sublime anxiety is in yoga traditions kundalini the thing that wraps around our innermost core and that awakening kundalini becomes a metaphor a strategy for literally waking up the serpentine that is making the the inner ahi the ahi that is wrapped around the core of your being a a full connection a, a, a character that breaks through barriers and moves through a process and wends and winds itself into all of the rivulets and forms of embodiment to create empowerment and nourishment and awakening and process. And so, once again, the image of waking up the serpent rather than keeping it at bay or managing or dealing with it as adversarial is such an interesting feature of the symbolic power that yoga has given us to take anxiety and reframe anxiety as a relationship of empowerment and protection and nourishment rather than one that is necessarily debilitating or problematic. And just to give that another example, um, you might remember in in some early images of of the historical buddha in meditation that we see this we see a buddha enthroned in the seat of awakening and behind him is a giant snake who much like vishnu's shesha is providing a shelter and a refuge and and in some sense a, a kind of serene protection a provocateur as the buddha meditates so the character whose name by the way is muchalinda muchalinda is the name of this snake-like being enthroned behind the buddha who who um, protects the Buddha in meditation. And there's also uh, um, another story because Muchalinda is one of the mighty kings of the serpents and, and how he came from beneath the earth and protected with his hood the one who was the source of all protection. So, so that's how that story is told, particularly uh, in the Buddhist canon and 
in, in one particular image I have in mind from Cambodia. And, and notice how the symbology works here. Where does Mucha Linda come from? It comes from the depths of our being. It comes from beneath the earth. It comes from the source and the core. And out of that, out of that place of darkness and core, that hidden place, the serpent arises. Now that could be really terrorizing, really scary. But here, because the character is the Buddha, because, because one is meditating on, on the possibility of, of awareness and clarity, because one creates a new relationship with the world. That's what, that's what Buddhas do, right? That's why they are awakened beings, because they extend into deeper and richer connection. They're yogis. And yet the world keeps storming. And so the heavens had darkened for seven days. There is a prodigious rain. And what does Muchalinda do? He comes from beneath the earth, which, by the way, since he's a snake and he's underneath the earth and it's raining, he comes out to protect himself, right? And then he protects with his hood the meditating Buddha because, because it is in the power of our own consciousness, in the power of our own awakening, that we become the source of all protection, the protection of ourselves, the protection of each other and the world, right? We are capable of taking a dangerous, precarious, difficult to predict, capricious, often cruel world, and we are able to deal with the storms. And Muchalinda stays in this, in this sheltering, hooded, protection over the seated Buddha until the storm had cleared. And then the myth says, this is very beautiful and very, very compelling imagery, that Muchalinda, the serpent king, the ahi, the anxious one, assumed again a human form so that he could come before the Buddha and offer his gratitude before he returned to his palace beneath the earth. What a wonderful and compelling image that is, that the serpent king transmutes himself into human form. Why? Because where is Ahi found? It's found at the core of being. It's certainly, obviously, symbolically represented in, in the Ahi himself, in the serpent, the sovereignty of that serpent, that it's a serpent king, tells us that this is, this is the height of anxiety. This is the empowerment of anxiety, right? This is the, this is the king of anxiety. He, and what does he do? He protects the Buddha because the Buddha represents that other feature of us where in our awakening, in our serenity, in our awareness, in our deep sense of what is possible, because we are human, we can take care of ourselves, of each other. We can offer compassion. We can become wise and engaged, right? That's what that symbol of the Buddha means here. And of course, uh, he takes human form to honor the Buddha because what form is more representative of the relationships we need than to see ourselves again and to see anxiety as a human form?
anxiety takes its human form to say thank you to the Buddha. And of course, the Buddha honors Muchalinda and blesses the serpent before Muchalinda returns to his palace. Now, this story is told as early as the second century before the Christian era. We have very many, lots of re-representations of this same deep archetypal sense of anxiety and fear. The serpent, of course, an archetype of anxiety and fear, clearly. And yet what we learn is that it is possible from the depths of our being to create a relationship, an awareness of honor and gratitude towards anxiety. And then when we become capable of protecting ourselves and nurturing our minds and hearts the way the Buddha as an archetype represents our human potential to wellness, to awareness, to awakening, literally to wake up, that that relationship of awakening to anxiety is one that is mutual and nurturing and empowering. Now, we're going to see this across the yoga traditions. The seated yogi, the maha yogi, Maheshwara, the great lord of empowerment, Yogeshwara, the lord of great yoga. The great lord of yoga is none other than the auspicious one known as Shiva. And in Shiva's mythologies, Shiva is ornamented with ahi, with serpents. They're coiled. There's, there are snakes coiled around his wrists, around his neck. They are surrounding him. He's often seen, much as the seated Buddha is seen with Muchalinda, he's seen um, with other serpents, like Vasuki is the name of one of these important serpents, another name for the king of serpents. And Shiva uses and, and has this intimate relationship of beauty and of ornamentation. He's not, he's not, he's not um, conquering or displaying or abusing his relationship with the ahi, with the sarpa, the serpents. He's, he's representing them as forms of power in which their danger always present, their anxiety, always provoke, always provocative, is met not only with his serenity, but with an acknowledgement of their, of their beauty and of their care. And, and the, the sense here is, is that Shiva is protecting the serpents, even as the serpents are protecting Shiva. Now, if Shiva means auspicious, if Shiva means affirmation, if Shiva stands for the power of your consciousness as a yogi to engage deeply in an affirmation, Shiva, auspiciousness, affirmation, an affirmation of your innermost being, then in that relationship, anxiety plays a role that in which we can learn to protect anxiety 
and then allow anxiety to protect us. And it is a complicated and prodigious effort because here again, it's represented in the great yogi, in, in Yogeshwara, as he's called in Sanskrit, the empowerment of yoga. But this is, I think, what makes it so compelling and so radical is to say that the serpents here are in an intimate relationship that express a feature of yoga, a feature of engagement with all the possibilities. Let's think of yoga as engaging the true possibilities of the world. And anxiety is given its role. It's given a place. And rather than being excised or, or managed or controlled, it's being, it's being a, given a different kind of relationship. Now, we're not saying that, that the traditions we talked about it earlier in which anxiety is adversarial or problematic or not real or not true, or that the quantities of anxiety can't overwhelm us or be problematic. That, that I think, is, again, another wonderful thing about what we're learning here about anxiety in the yoga tradition, and that is that can be true, and so can this. So can this image that Shiva takes the ahi, the anxiety, and makes it a remarkable form of beauty and values that protection and protects anxiety. Now let's take it one step further to one more image, and we'll call this um, our first conversation, bring it to a conclusion. And that would take us to one more image, and that is of the great goddess, Manasa. Manasa, whose name means like conjured of the mind, made, created out of the heart. And Manasa is a goddess and a queen and a heroine of snakes. Now, we see the snake goddess in many cultures. There's a magnificent image of, this, of, of the Minoan snake goddess from Greece that bears a stunning and interesting resemblance to the Hindu goddess Manasa, who we find all over India. We find Manasa in, in Bengal, near Kolkata, and in those traditions, we also find a deeply, an ancient archetypal form of Manasa in deep South India, in Tamil culture. And there Manasa is not only made of snakes, but, but people appeal to her to protect them from snakes and as a cure of snake bite. Right? So there's the danger of the snake, but there's also the invocation, the welcoming of Manasa, since she's a mother goddess, since she's, since she's a representation of fertility and prosperity. So Manasa is, at the very same time, a creative, imaginative symbol, right? an archetype that, that takes us to a deep archetype in which the paradox of anxiety is made so evident because she both prevents and cures the problematic of anxiety, the venomous part of a snake bite, anxiety taking us over, and she is also the creative, fertile, prosperous giver, the, the, the opportunity, the grace 
of that power. And so she's called in Sanskrit, they call her uh, Vishadari. Visha means poison. So she's the destroyer of poison. Vishahari, sorry, Vishahari, the one who takes away the poison. But she's also called Nitya, eternal or permanent. And then she's called the one who dwells in the lotus. And the lotus is the heart. It's the body. It's the mind. It's the beautiful, wondrous, sacred place of self. And so Manasa, the goddess, removes the poison. She's ever-present. She's nitya. She's eternal. And she's Padmavati. She's possessed of the lotus. She exists in the lotus. She's your very, she exists as the graceful, creative, fertile, prosperous presence of your innermost self. Now, if this seems like a lot to digest, <laughs> that's, of course, part of the magic of the serpent as an image here and as a powerful creative archetype. But let's draw this to a close and say how rich it is if we can, with seriousness and care, acknowledge the very real situations of our human condition, take up with real seriousness the manifest problematics. Anxiety is a real issue in people's lives. It's an issue in mine. And I can't think of anyone in which that isn't the case. Maybe because, as the goddess Manasa tells us, it's eternal. It's real. It's permanent. It's a part of what the world is. In fact, it's such an important part of the world that it's not, it's not some evil or not some problem to be solved only, even though it can be problematic. It, because it, it can consume us, but rather, and overtake us, but it's also, so importantly, a mothering quality. It, it, it birthed us. We were made of anxiety. We were made of manasa. And that that project is something that can empower us. It cannot simply poison us but it can allow us to remove what is poisonous and instead learn to reside and live more fully in the lotus that is in the beautiful awakening consciousness. And that's where I think we, should, we might bring this to an end because that image of the lotus emerges like Muchalinda, like the serpent of the Buddha. The lotus emerges from the muddy waters from the deep, muddy, murky places in the depths of being. The lotus roots itself in the mud of the pond. Muchalinda, the, the, the protective king of serpents, emerged from the depths of the earth and then returned to the palace of the Nagas, the palace of the Ahi, of the snakes, after having honored the Buddha. Shesha, the image of Ahi, the image of anxiety, is the protective and comforting feature of Lord Vishnu. In all of these cases, what we learn is that if we can create a calm, a calming, awakening, 
awareness of our relationship with anxiety, that this experience can become an empowering and creative part of our lives that we can honor and that honors us, that we can acknowledge is dangerous and problematic and discomforting, and yet at the same time, something that we can create as a form of beauty, a form of deepening connection to the lotus of the heart, to the awakening of the blossoming lotus of consciousness, of the mind, that we can take these symbols and values that we can study together in the yoga tradition and address in practical ways the issues of our lives. And in this case, this really genuinely problematic and yet natural feature of our human condition that we are anxious beings. What of that? What can we do about that? How shall we create a relationship with anxiety that is empowering rather than debilitating, that is nurturing and protective rather than only stressful and terrorizing? How do we enter into a deeper engagement with ourselves? And that's what we call yoga. Thank you, everyone. Um, Thanks for listening, if you got this far. And I want to thank everyone at GLOW for giving me the opportunity to have such an interesting conversation with you this morning. Thanks again. Do take care. Namaste. Thank you for listening to this talk by Professor Douglas Brooks, which Professor Brooks recorded especially for the GLOW podcast. Douglas will record a few more episodes like this, so watch for them in your feed. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.